0: Welcome to episode 88 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Nick Pendergrast. Nick is a sociologist who researches social movements, social change, and critical animal studies. He's a member of the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, the International Association of Vegan Sociologists, and the Australian Sociological Association. Nick also co-hosts the Freedom of Species podcast. I was uh, lucky to be a guest there recently. Uh, It's also a radio show on Melbourne's 3CR community radio station. He also co-hosts Progressive Podcast Australia with his partner, Katie. So make sure you subscribe to both of those uh, great shows. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 87 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. We're probably going to have a bit of a hiatus over the new year as well in terms of new episodes so it's a good opportunity to work through our historic work Uh, every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate rational thinking which indeed is the point of the podcast (laughs) you can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info where you can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening.
1: Good evening, Nick. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Jamie. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's great to span many, many time zones and um, have you on Sentientist Conversations. So thank you for pushing into your evening to talk to me. Um, No problem. As we've talked about before, and I know you've listened to a few of these already, but the idea is to focus, I guess, on two of the deepest and most important philosophical questions, what's real and what and who matters. And I have an obvious bias in the way I'm framing these conversations because I'm trying to normalize and develop a very simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which says we should commit to using evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. So I guess it's trying to answer that first question by saying we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence, reason. And the second question, what and who matters, the clue is in the name, focus on sentience, the capability to, uh, I guess, have experiences, particularly to suffer, to flourish and to grant moral consideration to all entities we think might be sentient. But I'm having said that, I'm talking to people in these conversations who agree and disagree with that way of thinking. So it'll be fascinating to understand your philosophical journey and where you've got to now on those two big questions and what, it's in, what their implications might be. Um, But before we get on to those questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work?
1: Yeah, so I am uh, Nick Pendergrass, a sociologist, is my academic area, um, and my research is on animal activism, and that comes out of my experience as an animal activist, and the questions that I was asking as an activist at the time that i was really interested in and then i had my sort of academic work over here separately and at some point uh writing my thesis i, I brought the two together it wasn't originally my phd topic it was going to be on something completely different but um yeah i was really heavily involved in animal activism at the time and um yeah i managed to bring those two worlds together in my academic work so um, yeah, sociology, animal activism. Um, and I'd say nowadays, I'm less involved in terms of activism in a traditional sense, in terms of doing street stalls and, and vegan outreach and the stuff I was kind of doing at that time. Um, but still definitely an advocate for animals, uh, mainly through media work like this, through radio shows, podcasting and stuff like that on animal issues and other social justice issues. Brilliant, yeah, and
0: you're a much more professional podcaster than me. You're sharing, kindly sharing some tips before we started, <laughs> so I've got much to learn. Um, yeah, and, I've learned. Uh, I've learned the hard way of uh, some some tips
1: over the time. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, and um, and it's interesting to sort of review. I guess your academic history as well, because you've done a lot of you covered so many different spaces, exploring the sort of human animal too with criminology and. You know, various different social issues. So um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. And,
1: and um, in fact, um, at the moment, my teaching really is very little to do with animals in the past that has been different. Um, when I've been coordinating units and that kind of thing, I definitely have brought animals into sociology courses. Um, but at the moment, I'm teaching on uh, units like inequalities, um, very much from a human centric perspective. So inequalities of gender, race, class, those kind of issues, but animals don't really come into it but they definitely come into it in my own research
0: yeah that's great do you find ways of cheekily sneaking the animal topic in even where it doesn't you know normally fit into the curriculum (laughs) because i find myself doing that all the time
1: (laughs) yeah definitely occasionally there's definitely there's definitely some parallels i think of yeah just give one example that i've sometimes touched on in my classes talk about functionalist theory which is a sociologist theory that inequality is positive because we need people doing the 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 cleaning jobs and the low-paid jobs and we need people to be doctors and have different skills and so basically according to that perspective which i'm critical of uh inequality is good basically because it allows society to function uh and i often yeah. bring in the animal perspective there because when i'm raising critiques of these issue of like these academics who are, who are kind of towards the top of the hierarchy of society in many different ways in terms of gender, ethnicity, class, they're, they're kind of sitting at the top. So things can look very functional if you're benefiting from it. Yeah. And so I've occasionally related that to animals in terms of a lot of uh, people say um, this relationship, the way that we use animals in this like happy meat and, you know, so supposedly humane killing. and It's a symbiosis. And yeah. yeah, exactly. It's functional. It, it's, you know, it, it's reciprocal and all those kind of things. And, and things can look that way if you're at the top, if you're the one winning out from these hierarchies. So that that's just one example where I might kind of, yeah, make the connection to animal issues. Yeah. Cool.
0: Well, we'll we'll come back to that, I think, later in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first of these two crazily broad questions I like to ask is, is what's real? And for many of my guests, that's a story about how they grew up originally, whether they were more in a sort of spiritual, supernatural, maybe religious um, household and society or one that was more naturalistic in its outlook um, and how their philosophy has shifted over time, if it has. So, yeah, you can wind the clock back as far as you like. It'd be fascinating to know your, your story.
1: Yeah, so I, I grew up very, um, not very, like totally non-religious. So both my parents identify as agnostics. Yeah. Um, reading uh, many years ago, the book, um, Atheism, the Case Against God, uh, that that book would make the case they're actually atheists and most agnostics are actually atheists because there's according to that book anyway, there's a misperception that atheism means you know for sure there is not a God yeah. um, but that's and the definition is not believing in God. So most agnostics don't believe in God. they, they don't believe it then yeah they're not 100% sure of that but they don't believe it. so according yeah. to that book anyway, most agnostics are probably atheists but I, I don't care how people identify if they like but but they de- identify as atheists uh, agnostics sorry. Um, but no no religion at all. And so religion, uh, anything sort of supernatural is not a part of my upbringing at all. Um, occasionally, I did come across religion just through friends and that kind of thing. I remember staying at a friend's place and going to Sunday school just because I was staying at his place Saturday night and then his family went to Sunday school on, on the Sunday morning. And yeah, I had a very uh, like anti-religious view at about five or six years old. I really wow. hated it. <laughs> Really? I, I hated, I hated the songs they sung. I just hate. I, I felt really uncomfortable. I probably felt a bit like Richard Dawkins looks. Every walks into like anything religious or spiritual. I think I had that look at about five or six. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't know where it came from because my parents were sort of non-religious, but not particularly anti-religious, and yeah. so. I really felt that I guess I at that whatever age I was five or six, I definitely would have been an atheist, even though I didn't know what the word was. I was like, no, I definitely don't believe this. This doesn't make any sense at all. And I really don't like this this environment. So um yeah, I guess yeah. as soon as I came across religion, um, yeah, I, I was not a fan at all. So yeah, basically religion wasn't really a part of my childhood upbringing at all. And whenever I came across it, I, I didn't like it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. And it's and has your Perspective on religion changed over time? Um, not not much. Not much. Um, You're pretty much yeah, still yeah. there where you were as a five-year-old at Dawkins. I, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'd say pretty pretty similar. Um, yeah, I'd say I've probably softened somewhat on that, but still pretty much feel the same way. Um and yeah, I, I guess in terms of uh like today, like religion or spirituality has zero uh, impact on my ethics or lack of ethics today so any ethical yeah. decision um is 100 separate from anything religious but also anything even vaguely spiritual as well i guess i'm a bit yeah. more of the the sort of the the hardcore atheist in that regard like i know again probably more like richard dawkins when there's anything kind of spiritual kind of have that uh look i guess compared to some like maybe more like sam harris who's i believe is a bit more into meditation and a little bit more sort of open-minded i guess about more eastern religions but really i yeah not really interested in in anything uh religious or or spiritual um but i guess in terms of i guess sort of softening my views somewhat over time i guess hearing um certain people who i admire and, and learn a lot from like other podcasters for example who are um spiritual and or religious in some way um, I, I feel like sometimes they can explain things in a way that makes some kind of sense. So I know yeah. uh, Mike Kaplan, for example, who, who's been on this show before as well, yeah, ha- has probably started off where I was uh, before taking mushrooms and I've just never <laughs> taken the mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. So I'm still where Mike Kaplan was like, like back then. Yeah. Um, but the way he explains it kind of makes some sense to me. I don't think like his views on spirituality are ridiculous or anything like that. But I haven't at all incorporated them into my, um, you know, sort of worldview or, or perspective, um, and and even um, religion, for example. I remember hearing a podcast on on Malcolm X and and his um, Islamic religion, and and thinking about the ways in which, um, yeah, they, these sort of rituals within the Islamic religion are sort of a way to make sense of the world. So even mm-hmm. though there's all these different things happening around, these kind of things are constant. And so I guess from over time, thinking about the ways in which maybe I do have things in my life which aren't at all religious or spiritual, but might sort of fulfill that same function, even if it's just as simple as exercising and having a smoothie in the morning or having these kind of constants in your life, Um, and and even things like spirituality as well. Um, Yeah, I I don't really engage with anything spiritual, but I guess thinking about um, one one thing uh, my partner said was like a flow state of being like totally engaged in activity where you're not thinking about like what emails I have to respond to or what have I got on tomorrow like you're totally engaged with that and for me that might be ice hockey for example I play ice hockey which is a very yeah. like intense sport and I oh, do yes. have that flows <laughs> st- yeah I do have that flow state of like nothing else is going on I'm totally focused on that or maybe going to see a band and being at live show and having that kind of thing and, and really enjoying those experiences and I was speaking to a friend who was a little bit more spiritual and he was like, well, I call that flow state, flow state spirituality. And I was like, well, I don't, but, but I don't really care. I guess either way we get something out of being in that state. So yeah, Yeah. still like definitely not at all, uh, sort of in that realm, not even doing anything that might even be vaguely spiritual. I don't meditate or anything (laughs) like that, but, um, yeah, being a little bit more of, of seeing some of the function of some of these things, which might be yeah. religious or spiritual over time. Yeah,
0: Make, makes sense. I think we're in a pretty similar space personally. And, um, and yeah, I'm, I you know, there are debates about what atheism and agnosticism mean. So, depending on how you frame that, I quite like the way of saying atheism is just the absence of a belief. But mm-hmm. others will say that's, you know, that's that's walking the definition, you know, is stronger than that. So, I either way, I'm either an extreme agnostic or I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really buy where where you put me because I leave you know a little bit of wiggle room but um to my mind there are you know there's a breathtakingly f- functionally infinite number of things you could choose to believe that have no evidence so I'm not sure why you'd pick one of them so yeah uh, you know I'm quite strong along that and it was interesting how you talked about spirituality and other aspects because there are many of my guests who maybe started out in a more formal religious context mm. and then sometimes went through a sort of new atheist, angry atheist, sort of pushing back phase, but then um, one like you and, and I, to some degree, recognize that it doesn't make sense to throw the baby out of the bathwater. And there are some positive themes that run through religious worldviews as well, that we can you know, um, have without the supernatural, um, but, but some of them have also got tapped back into some sort of softer spirituality or you know, other non-religious realms of the supernatural. Um, and I, like you, I haven't done that right. I still draw a pretty firm, hard line unless there's co- decent, convincing evidence. I'm not going to choose to give meaningful credence to anything. Um, but I think you're also right that there's there's often, you know we're we're good at coming up with words and terms, um of course, uh, that's part of the fun of being human. But there's a lot of overlap there. It, there can be a lot of overlap between a naturalistic and a sort of supernaturalistic way of thinking. And um whether that comes through, when I've talked to my guests who have a sort of more spiritual worldview or are open, more open to that stuff, there's an open-mindedness and a humility, which I think I also share on a naturalistic basis, right? There's always new evidence, but there's a difference where being open-minded about the possibility of something is different from granting credence before the evidence is there. So I think that's, that's one check for me. There's also this thing about a sense of connectedness and oneness that often comes through that spiritual worldview you know, that sense that we are all one, I'm just part of a cycle, I'm part of a pattern, which again, I think you could agree with just from an understanding of physics, really, you know, the classic Mm -hmm. Carl Sagan stardust thing. Um, Yeah, so there's some interesting overlaps there of different ways of describing what at root might actually be a similar sort of experience, whether we describe it as coming from a spiritual or religious place or a more naturalistic one. So yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and as we come on to the... um, The second question, what matters? Part of the reason I think the link is interesting. I mean, some people really like to draw a deep chasm between these two things. On the one side, there's reality and understanding things and what is. And on the other side, you know, there's the classic is ought distinction is what should we be doing in morality and ethics. And I think that chasm is sometimes overplayed. And that's partly why I like to address both of these topics one after the other. Because for some people who either moved away from a religious worldview or just engaged with it and didn't want to, Agree with it. It was a fact and an evidence thing, but there's often also a, an ethical drive there, where people are just saying Look, the ethics that are flowing through this religious system or interpretations of this religious system just clash with my intuitions about what you know good ethics is supposed to be. And you talked about even at five years old, you know, that it, it, there was a hint that there was a bit of both of those. But is there a sense that it's it's more of a fact based resistance, or are there also ethical themes that lead you to push back on it? supernatural way of thinking you're a religious
1: thinking. yeah i think there are um both i think definitely i i guess like the, the fact-based thing uh, again i guess at five or six years old i didn't really have any evidence <laughs> uh to the. i guess maybe you know i i guess if religion didn't exist as like a social construct within society it probably wouldn't make much sense to So i guess not growing up religious it, it didn't make much sense from that that point of view but um Yeah, you didn't have that default. No, no, exactly. No, I had quite the opposite as a default. So, yeah, I think there are definitely, um, yeah, definitely factual concerns of, of, I guess, seeing the dangers of of not, uh, yeah, believing things regardless of the evidence I see is quite dangerous in a religious context, but also it can definitely extend beyond the religious context, I guess, of like believing things without evidence. Um, And of course, like we should be critical of, you know, governments of official perspectives, et cetera. Um, But I I think there is sort of uh, something which is not necessarily religious or even necessarily spiritual, but can often sort of go with that of like, well, I, I just feel like this thing is that like just that sort of without evidence. And I think that can be quite dangerous when we're talking about, I don't know, vaccines, for example, is obviously a topical yeah. one at the moment. So I definitely have that sort of the, the, the factual, yeah, that, that sort of factual critique and, um, Yeah, I think also with the evidence, and I perhaps maybe don't have the same level of open-mindedness as you, I guess, when it comes to investigating these claims, but maybe I should if I was more consistent with my atheism and rationalism. But it does does remind me of um, a fan fiction book. My partner, she's a big fan of Harry Potter, and I'm, I'm a big fan of rationalism. So there's a fan fiction called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. And it basically, it goes through all these like key themes in rationality but with harry potter, harry potter characters and that kind of thing and so the harry potter, potter character his dad is a scientist and then the issue of magic comes up and harry from like all his training like in science is like well he's uh, let's do an experiment that can test whether magic is real or not and his dad's like this is too ridiculous like let's not waste scientific time on this ridiculous question um and i sort of understand that like harry probably has the correct perspective but I'd probably be more like Harry's dad in that perspective. Um, yeah, my partner has looked at studies of like out-of-body experiences and like how yeah. can we study this, like putting <clears throat> things on the wall and that kind of thing. And I, I do think it's kind of legitimate, but I, I just kind of feel like like it is probably good from a scientific perspective to have those. Yeah, like being open to these things, but I also kind of feel like there's more more important questions to be investigating. I guess so. Yeah, definitely yeah. that 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 factual thing um, is a part. Um, of it for me Um, I think also the um, yeah that sort of more ethical thing is definitely perhaps not really when I was so young I hadn't thought of those issues but as I got older and just started thinking about social justice issues uh, when it comes to humans uh, and and non-humans as well um, of yeah, and I, I don't want to make any specific critiques of any particular religions. I know uh Richard Dawkins has got in trouble for saying <laughs> the Quran does this and the Quran does that, and then never having read the Quran. So I, I like I think we get into for those of us who just aren't into in religion, like we get into maybe not the strongest territory when we start like trying to quote like phrases and stuff like that. So I'm certainly not saying this about any one religion. Um, But just religion as a whole is generally relying on these ancient texts, which were written before social movements for feminism, gay rights, etc. And so sort of going back to those, even though we can try and interpret them, try and cherry pick them in better ways, and I'd prefer people to do that, um, I guess. But I feel like it's a bit of an uphill struggle and it's always kind of going to set us back in terms of progress because we are going back to these things uh, if we view them as human constructs that were written before these progressive social movements have had that positive impact of bringing society forward when it comes to gender equality, uh, racial equality, et cetera. So I definitely see that more ethical objection to, uh, to religion as well. And i think also from going to uh an atheist convention uh this was back in 2010 i went to one um and there was a speaker and and his talk didn't go down too well um because most people was trashing religion and he was a little bit more sort of uh sort of nuanced i guess but he he was basically just saying that um you know not believing god and being anti-religion are two separate things so you could not believe in god but think religion has a positive social functioning society and also you could believe in god but also think religion has a very harmful impact are they kind of separate questions and he was sort of arguing that the atheist movement or whatever it is um it kind of often conflates those things like i i generally sort of identify with both of those things of being like not believing and and being anti-religion but um yeah yeah I, I guess the yeah so i guess yeah both of those sort of go together of the not believing in, in religion uh not believing like or seeing the dangers of believing things without facts but also the anti-religion from i guess seeing perhaps it being ho- holding back social progress um and i guess give, to give disclaimers as well i guess at, at the moment in australia I guess the the latest form of white supremacy has been anti-Islamic views, basically. So politicians who were talking uh, anti-Asian rhetoric in the nineties, for example, have now moved on to, you know, being anti-Islam. So yeah, when yeah. I say anti-religion, it's not to demonize any particular religion or even, you know, wish any discrimination against liberal speech in general. I guess when I say anti-religion, I mean I just don't, yeah, it doesn't have any role in my life, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm. And it's and it, and it is strange because, um, of course, in I think all religions, there is a strong there are strong themes of community and compassion that run through them all. But but uh, again, on balance, I'm with you in that <clears throat> there are people who and I think, you know, all power to them are trying to build on those compassionate roots and then cherry pick their way through to bring The religious ways of thinking, frankly, in line with modern humanistic or even sentientistic ethics, great, all power to them, right? But the fact that they're having to cherry pick to work through that by itself indicates that they are working against what is really a regressive handicap, because as you said, most of these texts were written, you know, a few thousand or in some fascinating cases, even a few tens of years ago, by normally, you know, men who had a very different (laughs) worldview when it came to Equality and rights, and you know, and, and and ethics. So, I agree, there's a sort of regressive dead weight that they're trying to push against. Um, so it's an interesting balance, but at the same time, for, for some of my guests, as they've moved away from a religious worldview, they've still felt, even if there were problems with the ethical system that came packaged with religion, they've still felt like there was a gap, you know, there was something they needed to rebuild they're like okay i've you know i don't have a god looking over my shoulder now with a scorecard you know threatened to burn me in hell for eternity which i still think is a bizarre thing to tell a child but you know it's a different topic um but once that's gone you know they have a, this sense of having to rebuild a, a, an ethic and you you never really had that supernatural view or influence at all so i would be interested in your uh, thoughts on this second question about what what matters morally and there's often two parts of that conversation. One is okay, if we don't have a supernatural basis for our ethics, what is it grounded on? What's it based on if it's grounded in anything? And the second related question, which is um, who matters and how does our scope of moral consideration shift over time? Um, Mm -hmm. And you might be another one of those, you know, interesting guests who had it all laid out from five years old and you've just stuck with that since. But again, it'll be interesting to know your story about when you started to think about ethics and and how you've answered those two questions and how you've changed over time
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i think that that is an interesting question i did actually have a friend who was a yeah like pretty hardcore christian um at the yeah. time like very much into christianity and yeah, and then he moved away from that, and he actually, you know, spoke to me and my partner, Katie, Katie, and was saying, like, like we're, we're at the time, we were both heavily involved in animal rights activism and other social justice issues, et cetera, and, and was saying, like, you know, you two seem like quite ethical people, but yet I know you're not religious at all, like, and, and so he was sort of struggling with that a bit because he, his How can morality... This be? Yeah, well, I guess his his morality had come through religion. And now he'd he ditched the religion, or at least was moving away from it and was um sort of struggling with like, I do want to be a moral person. Like he was a very com- or is a very compassionate person and that kind of thing. But it was just I sort of while I can't relate to it firsthand, I I understood that difficulty of like, you know, he, these do our morals came from, and now I'm moving away from that. Like, how how do I be moral? Where do my morals come from? Um, I, I, I guess for me, it, it never yeah, I guess I never really had that struggle. Um, and I guess I would probably partly put that through to my upbringing um, in terms of having parents who are quite um, socially progressive, quite, quite liberal in, into social justice, et cetera. And so I guess all of that stuff came fairly natural to me. Um, ha- having said that, I would say I was generally quite apathetic. like As, as a kid, I wasn't one of those kids who um yeah it was like really into like i remember there was like an amnesty international club at my high school and i wasn't like that's a silly idea but i wasn't one of the students who was getting active with that club or anything like that yeah. i was more into like sport really were like uh, ice hockey and that kind of thing at the time um and still am but yeah with the the, the justice as well but um yeah, so I I, be, I guess I'd say I generally grew up fairly socially progressive, but also pretty much apolitical as well. Yeah. Um. So if I saw racism or that kind of thing, I I thought it was a bad thing and something needed to be challenged, like in my everyday life. But it wasn't anything that I kind of saw on a bigger scale or looked at politics or anything like that. Um. The big turning point for me came out of um, yeah, soon out of high school was listening to punk rock music was my sort of gateway into politics, ethics, thinking about religion. Um, not that I really changed my views, but I guess listening to bands like bad religion, for example, to sort yeah. of further ingrain my views that I'd already had since, since a kid about religion. Uh, but just thinking more deeply about ethical and political questions. Um, yeah. A- and around that time as well, there was to, to sort of age myself was the war in Iraq as well. Um, and so, yeah, around that time, I went to my first protest against the Iraq War. So, so that was happening. Um, a lot of the the punk bands that I listened to uh, were putting together compilations against George Bush, the U.S. president at the time, and that kind of thing. And so, I started just thinking more about politics, about war, about the environment, um, all, all those kind of issues. And so, yeah, that was sort of my gateway into actually being much more politically engaged. Yeah, um, and it's fascinating because yeah. I think
0: I think most most people who probably don't know much about the punk scene, would be quite shocked to hear of it being a gateway to ethics
1: mm-hmm. and
0: political awareness. But there's, there's obviously some really strong themes there, and you know, it wasn't part of my life particularly, but I, one of my previous ge- guests um, you know, Christophe Don, again, talked about his involvement in the punk scene and talking about straight edge and other aspects, actually in a similar way, being a bit of an eye-opener into thinking in a more radical way about social justice and politics and ethics. And-
1: yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that was huge for me. Yeah, again, like bands like Bad Religion, not just about religion, but singing about like environmental themes, anti-war themes, um, lots of different issues. Propaganda were another huge one. Um, and their CDs were almost like reading like a political book or something like that. The information in there and everything, and it really just made me yeah, to just really think about everything and and not just think about anything, everything in a philosophical way, but actually sort of want to take action, uh, on the on those issues. So. Yeah. It, it, so yeah, at the time I was sort of started to think more about politics, and yeah, got starting go along to rallies with the anti-Iraq War rallies, like hearing about like Noam Chomsky through Bad Religion. They did a collaboration on on a record and that kind of thing, and sort of hearing these names being dropped in punk rock, rock songs like Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, and then going and reading those authors and. And that kind of thing. And so around that time when I was, um, yeah, again, at university, and I'd often go along to the university open days and I'd just be, I was really sort of hungry for information. So pretty much most of the stalls, uh, refugee rights, anti-war, whatever, I'd just grab all this information and and was just really into all, like right from the start, all those different causes. Like I was never like, this is the one issue. Like all of them were important. Uh, and then I came across a stall, an animal rights stall with vegan stuff. And yeah, took all that information, that kind of thing. Um, and it just sort of made total sense to me that I was already thinking anti-war, pro-environment, you know, human rights, refugee rights, like the animal rights stuff just made total sense to me within that framework that I already had. And so I read and the information. It, oh, and, go ahead. And this
0: may be an odd question, but people mm-hmm. find the different ways into this. But there's this, it feels like a, there's a strong theme of justice and I guess by implication sort of fairness mm. uh, running through a lot of the, the, the motivation there. I don't know. if Maybe it can. Or it can be the same thing. But with other people, they talk about it more from a perspective of, I guess, compassion and empathy and a you know concern for the suffering of others. Yeah. Is there a balance between those two? Are they one thing? Are they? Is there? A, does it make sense to even draw a distinction between what was driving your thinking?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say that's a, that's a fair point. Yeah, I'd say probably more around fairness than compassion. It definitely was compassion, but also I don't think I'm a particularly emotional person so it wasn't um yeah I think it was more like a rational like that that is morally not right and again yeah. I can't necessarily say where that comes from as a sociologist I think our social well I mean not only sociologists think this but you know, like our socialization how we're brought up is very important so I think sort of growing up in that sort of progressive environment my parents had been involved in um, like feminist movements and um, anti-war movements and stuff like that like in the 70s etc so yeah I think even though I hadn't engaged with that stuff um, from a young age yeah I think I still sort of took on those ethics yeah. as like positive things and I think even like more so the animal stuff actually even though as a kid I did eat animals I remember I think I really sort of challenged the human animal hierarchies. I remember even like silly little examples like our dog at uh, my dog Dommy when I was a kid growing up, uh, me and my brother would like worship her like a queen kind of thing like she should be treated well, like it wasn't this idea of like you're below us It was like yeah, you're, you're your highness and and yeah, just little yeah, things like yeah. my mum would say, like, no, she can't be in the kitchen. And I'd be like, she can go wherever she wants. Like, that it's, it's like, there's not for us to say where she can go and where she can't go and that kind of thing. So, so even resisting though...
0: speciesism and to, to an extent, yeah. even as a kid. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah I, I didn't, it didn't make sense that I was above my dog, for example. Um, even though again, I was still eating other animals. Um, and actually, my parents had been vegetarian at some point, like way back, like in the 70s or whatever. Um, and sort of, Moved away from that ironically, partly because of us. Like, we were like, Oh, like I thought I was eating chicken, um, and it was actually tofu. So I just kind of got that thing that doesn't taste right. And some tofu does taste bad, to be honest, and some is really good too. But maybe it wasn't the best tofu, but maybe I was just didn't get what I was expecting. But I wasn't necessarily into that. Um, having said that, I did as a kid drink soy milk, I, I made vegetarian meals and that kind of stuff. So I was never anti-vegan or anything like that, but I just hadn't really just made that um made that connection. If I ever heard someone's a vegetarian, I thought that oh, that sounds like a good thing. Like I just hadn't really thought about it myself. I remember even asking my parents, like, why would people be vegetarian because the animal's already dead? And then like when I saw a <laughs> yeah. venture, and they're like, yeah. yeah, but they hope people will kind of you know reduce the demand and all those kind of things. But um yeah, so I was never, yeah, I was. think I was always pro-animal and always, yeah, pro whenever I thought about it. Like, it, that, that's a pretty good thing to be vegetarian. I wasn't one of those people who mocked it. But, yeah, hadn't really put it in into practice. And then, yeah, read that information, became vegetarian, and then years later became vegan. And,
0: um, yeah. And was that, because yeah. in a way, the way you described the, you know, before you went vegetarian and vegan is, is mm-hmm. where most people are. Because in a sense, you know, I think most of the 7.8 billion people on this planet in theory, would agree with this sort of sentientist ethic where they say, look, any being that can suffer matters and we shouldn't needlessly cause suffering. So they probably agree in theory. Um, But as we know, given the weight of social norms, turning that into practice, particularly around food and product and animal product consumption is, is a journey that so far most people have just not taken for a variety of reasons. We'll come back to later. So for you, was there like a, a moment where you the light went on? Was it a long process? And, and was it difficult intellectually, emotionally, and socially as well? Or was it just you know, pretty yeah, straightforward?
1: I, I, yeah, it, it was fairly straightforward. I guess the um going through that process, like um, yeah, um my my partner at the time who was probably more like emotionally affected by it, was like, I'm going vegetarian right away. And I, I was never particularly into um like yeah or, or invested in eating animals particularly and so I remember just having initial thought of like well like I'm happy to be vegetarian like all the time but maybe if I'm out and that's all that's available maybe I would eat the meat so I guess that's the sort of the social side of not kind of wanting yeah. to stick your neck out even though I would say I was particularly again through the punk music. I think like often the way we grew up is always like, I don't want to stick my head out. I don't want to be different. I I want to be normal. I want to fit in. And I think like punk rock is quite the opposite. It's like, it celebrates being uh, individual, hopefully in a positive sense, not in a negative sense, not like individualistic. I don't care about anyone else, but like celebrating that people can be different. And then that's a good thing and and a positive thing. So yeah, I think I was feeling like less like that in general of wanting to conform. But I do remember having that initial thought. But quite quickly, I, I went vegetarian. Um, yeah. And then it did take me quite a few years, about three or four years as a vegetarian and then eventually became vegan. So, yeah, it is a, yeah, it is kind of a, yeah, it was, I guess, a long process. It wasn't long for me to change my habits, but it was um, quite a long process to actually go vegan, which was what the pamphlets were discussing. So, Yeah. And I think partly that could relate to a lot of the literature I read was kind of a little bit sneaky in a way that they were talking about veganism, but using the word vegetarian, which I I feel like is probably less common than it was at that time, like in the early 2000s, like a lot of organizations come right now out and say vegan, but I think because I was just hearing about vegetarian, 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 like occasionally vegan, it was kind of like, well, vegetarian's pretty good, so maybe I'll do that. Um, and then just being reminded of the egg and dairy issue that I already knew about it, just being reminded
0: of it later on, I cut that out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you say yours was a long, long journey. Mine took a lot longer than that. So, yeah, so I, <laughs> I, I went vegetarian, you know, early, mid-20s, and then it was a couple of decades later before I went vegan. So, yeah, and I think, you yeah, and I hadn't, you know, lesson of excuse. I think there was something about um, vegetarianism just being talked about as as the thing. Um, but I've just discussed it on previous episodes of this as well. Almost embarrassingly, it was it was partly calibrated by social norms in a sense that I thought at that felt at that time vegetarian was weird, but not super weird. You know, it felt like veganism would have been a super weird thing to do. So I almost sort of deliberately held myself back. And there was, you know, as with you, you know, just learning and relearning the facts around dairy and eggs and now, as one of my my first guests called it liquid meat. <laughs> you know, sort of yeah, recognizing yeah. that in terms of the choices, there you know, there really is very little difference between um you know the implications of your actions. So yeah, it's interesting and, how those... that
1: is actually bring it back to punk rock, that is a propagandy song liquid meat is still murder. Oh is it? So, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <There> you go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, so yeah, that's so that's that's fascinating. Thanks. And the um Where you've got to now in terms of your scope of moral consideration sounds like it's similar to mine, in that it's, um, you know, you might say human and non human animals. I guess more technically, I draw the boundary using sentience, i.e., this capacity to have um, experiences to suffer or flourish, which does differ a little bit from animals because you can imagine the super simple animals, like maybe a sea sponge that has no nervous system at all. I'm pretty confident they're not sentient, but generally, I think there's a pretty, you know, strong overlap there. Now, some people will criticise that sentient, sentiocentric view and say, look, you've gone too far, you need to pull it back to humans, a sort of anthropocentric stance. And you and I would both disagree with that. But some people go the other way. Um, and one of the first times the word sentientism was used was actually to criticise it and say, look, you guys are just discriminating. Again, it's another form of discrimination, because you're discriminating against the stuff that can't suffer. So some people will go to biocentrism or ecocentrism, uh, you know, think care caring intrinsically morally about things that are living but not sentient, you know, i.e. plants, um, although we could have a discussion about plant sentience. Um, as vegans on Twitter, we're used to that uh, challenge all the time. What about the plants? What about the poor carrot? Anyway, um, or, or an ecocentrism, a sort of hol- holistic way of thinking that says actually, no, the ecosystem, the habitats, the rocks, the rivers, the trees, the mountains, everything, everything matters morally. What's your thought about going beyond sentience? Do you, re- you know, what's what's your, yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess what I guess to, to frame it, So I guess I would say that, um, and, and perhaps this this comes out of like punk music as well, but uh, politically identify as an anarchist. And um, yeah, I would say that comes from rejecting hierarchies. That's sort of the way I see anarchism. Like, not just hierarchies between the political political class and citizens, for example, but also hierarchies are um, based on gender or, or ethnicity or species. Or so I kind of see anarchism as as kind of consistent with um, sentient sentientism. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I know a previous uh, episode. You had like I don't think you have to be an anarchist to be a sentient. I just I, I see some some parallels there as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I definitely would. I, I wasn't familiar with the term. Like I was aware of like you know sentient animals, et cetera, But I wasn't specifically aware of that that concept of sentientism um, until just listening to um, your show. But yeah, I definitely do identify with it. And I guess I should thinking about that idea of like you know anarchism and rejecting hierarchies i i guess from think rethinking it in the context of sentientism i would say um rejecting arbitrary hierarchies yes um and so yeah i definitely connect with that um for sure and yeah I i was kind of having a think about that of like do i care about like deeply on individual, like an individual tree or an individual plant, etc. And yeah, I, I don't think I do, or, or at least I don't to the same level as I would about an individual animal. Um, there are certain examples, like here, I'm in uh, Victoria, in Australia, and there was a recent example where a sacred indigenous tree was chopped down, and that was something I was concerned about. But again, it comes back to SEMTI is sentientism um, because i was concerned about that as more of a human rights issue like for that indigenous group that was culturally significant for them more than like any tree just being chopped down in general so again i think that can be an objection that can be linked back to sentientism um so yeah i i'd say I, i and i was introduced to this kind of thinking um with the the light green and dark green forms of environmentalism so light green is we want to preserve the environment because we want to keep living or for our grandchildren, that kind of very human centric perspective. And then there's deep green, which is the environment or the non-human world has value in itself. And so I was always like, oh, I'm definitely in the deep green side of it. But then even within that deep green, there's all kinds of debates and disagreement. But I definitely come more to the, the sentientism side of that Uh, There was a campaign I was somewhat involved um, in back in Western Australia where I'm from, the the other side of Australia, um, to say Bielia Wetlands. It was like a wetlands. And it was interesting, uh, thinking sociologically about that campaign, there was all kinds of different framing, like why these wetlands were important. So often it was that light green thing of like, I want to preserve this wetlands um, because my grandchildren should be able to enjoy walking around at that kind of thing. Um, And again, me coming from the more the deep green perspective, I was more and particularly involved in animal advocacy. I was more, it was more an animal rights campaign for me, or at least an animal focused campaign of like, this is a habitat for animals. Uh, If they were going to put a highway through like they are proposing the animals are going to lose their home, so it's very much from the perspective of individual animals. So, yeah, I, I don't know if if valuing like non uh, non sentient the non sentient world requires some kind of spiritual worldview. I I think of a lot of indigenous traditions that do um, have a spiritual aspect to it, yeah. which again I don't have. So I don't know if it is that lack of spirituality which means I I have that, but I've just never really connected to that. I do. I am concerned about the environment, and perhaps it does have some kind of uh, again that deep green has some kind of value in its own right. But again, I, I see it as mainly valuable in in terms of providing homes for for sentient individuals. I guess so. Yeah, I definitely connect with that totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I think I'm in a very in a very similar place. And as you've said, it doesn't prevent us having a rich, deep, powerful concern for ecosystems, environments. Um, you know non-sentient stuff because it's so critical to the experiences and the survival of you know the maybe quadrillion sentient beings on this planet. So you can still have a lot of yeah. overlap. But I think you're yeah. right that the, the danger with refusing any hierarchy, and you know you might see that you mentioned that in the context of anarchism, but it also does come through in many mystical worldviews. you know this the next step beyond we are all connected, we are all one is you know everything is equal. And you can also feel that in a sort of super broad, holistic, systemic, ecocentric view, everything matters. and And the risk for me is if everything matters in a sense, nothing does. right. so if mm. if everything matters the same, crushing a rock or cutting a carrot or stabbing a pig, mm. you know what's the difference? and yeah. uh, And that's part of my frustration is, in a sense, I don't mind if people want to go beyond sentience mm. if you want to, but don't use that to justify. know needlessly harming or killing sentient beings and most most people who have that very broad environmental concern frankly do that right they will care about ecosystems rocks and rivers much more than they will about a chicken or a fish in a in a farm Um, and and i'd argue that even if you have a biocentric or an ecocentric worldview surely you still have to acknowledge that the capacity to suffer matters on top of that but um, yeah that's that's my only concern about going beyond
1: um, yeah, it is interesting. Like you see, like the like hippies' fruit. Like and hippies are all different kinds of things, but I often think like oh, a hippie kind of group, or or even like a supermarket, like organic supermarket. You're kind of thinking all this vibrant fruit and veg, and all, and then you kind of see this like gross area with all these dead animals, and it's like, how does this fit with all this like yeah. stuff? And and I guess it kind it's of the circle does, of life. It's
0: the circle yeah, of life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, often find that 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 kind of hippie kind of everything's connected, as you say, kind of nothing matters. You kind of it, it can, I guess, perhaps in some case, there definitely are hippie vegans for sure, but it yeah. can often be gone the other way. Like, oh yeah, I'm connecting with the animals and we're all part of nature and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I guess in terms of the the non-sentient world, I guess I, like, I, I care about it more as like systems, like ecosystems yeah. as a whole, more than like an individual tree or an individual plant which admittedly is my critique of conservation that they often forget about individual animals. They just view them as ecosystems. But again, I think going back to the arbitrary hierarchies, I think that it is justified in, in that case of like the individuals versus the collective focus because of that sentientism or, or, or lack of it. Yeah. Like, yeah.
0: yeah. And I, I, like, I like the way you focus on the word arbitrary, because to my mind, in a, in a way sentientism is the only rational, the only justifiable discrimination because to my mind, sentience is the qualifier for moral consideration. If you can experience suffering and flourishing, you matter morally. If you can't, you don't care. Um, you yeah. can't care. You, there, you know, there's nothing to care. Um, yeah. So, I yeah, in, in, in that sense, I'm fine to respond to that original criticism and say, yes, we are discriminating, and it's, it's not arbitrary. It's completely well-founded, and it's almost baked into the definition of a naturalistic morality
1: yeah yeah and i think also there are as you mentioned sort of the gray areas of sentient like who is sentient and who isn't um and i guess like as a sociologist i'm not particularly qualified to sort of engage with like exactly where that line is drawn but i guess just as an individual and my consumption habits or whatever i always try and err on the side of like if something might be sentient i'll avoid consuming that like the classic honey example it's like well yeah. i can have maple syrup i could have all kinds of different things to sweeten my food so yeah like i'm not an expert on bee sentience by any means but you know be i yeah i i assume they're sentient or at least i i, I don't think they're not sentient so it's yeah. like yeah i think with those marginal cases um or yeah cases we're not quite as sure of like yeah, one, not using them to justify eating cows and that kind of thing as well. But also, yeah, I, I generally, I think Peter Singer gave this example of like giving them the benefit of the doubt. And yeah. if there is any doubt, I, I tend to sort of err on the side of giving the individual a benefit of the doubt that they are an individual. <laughs> yeah, I
0: agree. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. in a way, I'm, I'm trying to frame this sentientist idea as very pluralistic and very basic. So it literally is just that naturalistic commitment and a sentiocentric, compassion, nothing else. So in that sense, it doesn't actually tell us what types of entities or species or beings are sentient. It just says, you know, follow a naturalistic approach. So to my mind, um, that should lead you to have, you know, probabilistic credence in something sentient. You're never a hundred, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure you are sentient, but you know, I certainly give you a 99.99% credence. Um, so it should be probabilistic, it should be provisional because we might, we're always learning more. And you know, I know some people at the moment who are Trying to in non-invasive ways understand whether bees are sentient and to what degree, and their conclusion so far is it looks pretty likely actually. Um, so it's uh, I guess probabilistic, provisional, but I'd also agree with you that you need to add prudent to that list. You know where there's a potential in- ethical impact, giving the benefit of the doubt and um, is super important. So I, I'm the same with you. You know whether it's bivalves or insects or you know I'll err on the side of caution in terms of practical practical choices. So, so one final question i wanted to ask before we move off this what matters thing and i ask you to solve all the world's problems in 10 minutes is when we're thinking about what what matters often there is this sense that there's you know human ethics over here even though humans are animals and then there's non-human animal ethics and causes over here and there's often a lot of sensitivity and controversy and difficulty in working out whether to talk about the intersection of those things both within the human space but particularly across the species and whether it makes sense or whether it's appropriate or even ethical to draw parallels or whether we should keep them segregated or if that segregation itself is speciesist so in that sort of horrible controversial morass how do you think about intersections between different forms of i guess oppression or ethics as within the human species and as they span across into species
1: yeah, I think the connections are definitely there and and are really important. Um, but I, I do think there, as animal advocates, we should be cautious about how we go about making those connections, yeah. um, both on philosophical grounds, but also practical grounds as well. Because I think sometimes the, the connections perhaps can be philosophically valid, um, you know, in that it would probably hold up in an academic journal or something like that. But even if it's philosophically valid, if it's not, if it's not practically beneficial in terms of promoting your message, then I think that's another reason not to promote messages in a certain way. Even if it does make sense philosophically, so yeah, again, I think totally that you know, like intersectionality was originally coined to look at the experiences of Black women and looking at connections between, um, particularly gender and race, and also class came into it. But i think just due to the the nature of the term like even if we take black women for example some black women might have disabilities for example which might lead to different experiences compared to able-bodied black women for example so i think the term itself does lend it to um connections beyond gender and race for example um class
0: uh disability um and also species as well so I think, yeah, and and, and, and I'm I'm only an amateur in this space, but my understanding of one of the original case studies of intersectionality, I think really crystallizes the value of that perspective. Because from my understanding, you can correct me, it was a situation where a a firm or a factory were claiming that you know we're not discriminating because there are black men on the factory floor Hmm. and there are white women in the office. So we can't be sexist because there are white women in the office, and we can't be. Uh, racist because there are black men on the factory floor, and of course the intersection being, you know, a black woman who's not allowed to work on the factory floor because you're a woman, but you can't work in the office or be customer facing because you're black. That intersection was, you know, another level and type of discrimination that is completely yeah. ignored if you only look at each individual, you know, source of discrimination. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And it was Kimberly Crenshaw as a legal scholar who coined that term in uh, nineteen eighty nine. It was, and, and yeah, like that is a really good example of those connections. And even another example is like there are stereotypes of women overall, which harm all women, for example. But there are also negative stereotypes which specifically negatively impact uh, African American women or Asian women, et cetera, which yeah. are going to be unique to that group as well. So, yeah, again, I think it's a really useful concept and. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Carol Adams has written a lot about the connections between, you know, women and, and animals or or sexism and you know harm to animals. Um, and there's all kinds of connections and you and know, I've written about some of them myself. Um, but yeah, I do think um, again, both philosophically and practically, I think we need to be cautious about how we go about that. So I think where some of the criticisms come in, like I think there's some criticisms that come purely from speciesism in terms of like you can't make that connection because speciesism isn't a valid form of discrimination and so therefore how could you talk about like women and animals in the same sentence or whatever. Um, But then there are perhaps more valid concerns which are more about the way those connections are made. Um, And I feel like some... um, animal advocates kind of only draw on those forms of other forms of oppression to try and advance the cause of animals and and i think that is where yeah um that is where the, the sort of the, the problems kind of come in of like it's almost not,
0: instrumentalizing the human oppression because it's useful yeah. for yeah
1: yeah and not actually necessarily that meaningfully opposing that Um, And yeah, I I guess having said that, I guess uh, one thing I've sort of come from an academic and an activist background, but in terms of academic writing about intersectionality, it's kind of talking about all of these different things are important and they're all connected. Um, But then some scholars have said, yeah, but what do animal advocates actually do with that? I know Esther Allown, who's a similar scholar in an area to me um, researching animal issues, has said, well, that doesn't mean animal activists have to campaign against every single issue. And so that kind of got me thinking about, yeah, what what does it actually mean to take that seriously? And so I've, yeah, sort of based on the work of another legal scholar called uh, Marilyn Decker, who's written about Peter and their campaign, sort of Based on her work, I've sort of set these, um, yeah, sort of minimum standards for animal advocacy and are taking those things seriously, which, which means that, again, according to Decker, and I, I tend to agree with this, It's acceptable to spend 100% of your time campaigning for animals, uh, but it's about recognising the legitimacy of human oppression um, and also not contributing to human oppression in your campaign. So, like, obviously, you can do more. You can make coalitions with other groups. You can also spend time advocating for humans, et cetera, but that is, like, a base, like, absolute minimum kind of standard in terms of meeting the the minimums of intersectionality. So, yeah, I, I think, like, if, if you are talking about other forms of oppression, like not just using, I don't know, whatever it is, um, cutting back on women's abortion rights to talk about eggs and dairy, but also thinking about that as a legitimate issue in its own right, perhaps one that you're also, um, yeah, not necessarily going to spend time campaigning against, but at least recognise the legitimacy of that, I guess. Um, and I guess I also want to link this a little bit to sort of um, like uh, very sort of, yeah. Either or kind of thinking within the animal movement and beyond as well. I feel like a lot of the time uh, vegans in particular are like, I'm vegan. I have the information yeah. uh, and I need to convince everyone else to go vegan. And I think, yeah, vegan outreach and, and more people become vegans is definitely a good thing. But you mentioned the humility at the start. I think we also need to go, well, that person isn't vegan, but maybe I could learn about feminism from them. Maybe I could learn about issues around disability from them. So thinking about that kind of two-way flow of information and very similar in the atheist movement, which, again, I probably am fundamentally sort of on board in many ways, but I think they also, some, some people within that movement have a very simplistic view of like, religion is the problem and kind of reduce conflicts israel palestine or whatever down to just religion when there's so many other things going on and you can also get that thing of like i'm doing the right thing i'm an atheist so i just need yeah. to convince the other people so you sort of get this very i, I find it quite boring because you already know this information and you just feel like you're going that rather than this kind of um two-way flow of information and and seeing Cornell West speak, for example, he is an academic philosopher and an activist in the US um, and he's a Christian um, but very committed to social justice and so yeah, if I had a conversation with Cornell West I'd like to know what I could learn from him. I wouldn't try and convert him to be an atheist yeah. or something like that. Yeah. so yeah, I hope that brings it back to the humility as well so I think that is useful both within atheist and and animal circles of
0: yeah um agree and I, uh, and, and, and yeah. I wonder if- it, it does feel sometimes that there's a, a bit of a link um, in style and tone between some in the atheist community and some uh, in the vegan community, um, and it's it's funny because obviously many people in the atheist community criticize veganism and say it's like a religion, whereas actually I think with good validity most vegans would say no animal product consumption is more like a religion because you know you're ignoring the evidence and the reason and you've turned away from compassion, whereas we you know, have in the same way as you've turned away from a religious way of thinking, you know, we have also rejected harmful social norms to, you know, follow evidence and reason to a more compassionate outcome. So they'd switch it around. But there does seem to be sometimes a tone similarity between some of the atheist mm-hmm. community and some vegans. And I wonder if it, it partly comes from when you're so convinced you're right around a particular topic, mm. you sort of think you might be right about everything. And that can so so i think it's partly that but it's also because if that topic is very important to you it can sort of override everything else and i think yeah both sides could do with a bit more humility and open-mindedness And
1: yeah i like i remember seeing naomi klein speak do you know naomi klein she's yeah. a journalist has written about on climate change and and like someone who was vegan was like did you ask her a question about like animal agriculture and stuff and it's like i already know animal agriculture has a big impact on the environment like i want to know what what she's got to say and if people she knows are vegan and, and do make have those conversations with her, but I, I don't think a sort of a, a pointed question is really going to, but it's like, yeah, again, I, I feel a like kind of a boring way of thing of having like your one one analysis and then trying to sort of get that into every conversation rather than you know understanding that intersectionality and that all these different things are important. Yeah. And I guess a, a critique of intersectionality I've heard from within the animal movement, is the issue of recipro- reciprocity. So the idea yeah. of like, oh, I, I showed up to their rally for Palestine, but then they're not going to come along to my animal rights rally or go vegan. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it because when I have been to like a rally for Palestine or a refugee rights rally or a Black Lives Matter rally or whatever, I'm not going in there in the hope I'll convince someone to go vegan. I'm going because that is an important cause in its own right that yeah. I'm genuinely taking part in. So I think it's that, yeah, again, thinking as like you'd only take part in these movements as a way to promote veganism, I think is just a as a I think a dead end way to to do intersectional. was not really doing intersectionality well, but yeah, I think there is engaging good yeah. faith with yeah 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 exactly yeah yeah, and then if in doing that and and you meet people and have incidentally have conversations, then that's great, but. I don't think that should be your motivation um, any more than like when I'm engaging in vegan outreach, it's not in the hope I'll have a discussion with someone about Palestine or refugee rights or whatever, if I do great, but it's not why I'm engaging. I'm engaging because I care about that issue. So
0: yeah, yeah. And now I'm really worried that anyone who's listened to this will go back through my Twitter feed and assess <laughs> how consistent I am with my humility and my open-mindedness but you know anyway we're all we're all well, imperfect we're all working we're all working yeah yeah, yeah of
1: course yeah yeah it's yeah and I, i'm sure i'm not yeah yeah it is like more like aspiring aspiring towards that yeah. um yeah. yeah more and i think i definitely did have that mentality um not so much around atheism i think that was never really the primary lens it's more just something that religion just isn't something impact my life but it was never really a big focus of trying to convince people to go become atheists even when i went to the atheist convention uh once back in 2010 it wasn't so much like i'm part of a social movement it was more like you know some of my favorite comedians are going to be there there's an illusion to sound like a fun weekend which it was i didn't necessarily see part of some kind of social movement um but i think with veganism i think at least at some point it was kind of thinking about oh like yeah how can i get that person to go vegan i was thinking like i'm going about this the wrong way i think it's more about just yeah engaging with all these issues and if someone thinks about veganism, then, then great, but it's not sort of the primary focus
0: for interactions by any means. Makes sense. And again, it, it, it can be difficult to do that consistently because I guess when it comes to the animal product setup and animal farming and fishing, well, I guess once you've taken the blinkers off, the ethical harm and horror is so visceral and obvious and um, mind-blowing in its scale And the level of social acceptability is, again, just deeply shocking. It's it is, I think, psychologically understandable how that can become, you know, so centrally defining for the way people think about the world. It's, you know, I struggle with myself. I, you know, you're walking around talking to people in a world that thinks this stuff is 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 normal. It's quite I can you can understand why there's that you know that can become quite obsessive. But to your point, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily make make you effective in trying to achieve what you want to achieve. but Yeah. And I
1: I think, I think also like thinking rationality, I guess like thinking like rationally and I think I do like, again, it's more something you aspire to than you have, (laughs) but I think generally, I I hope I I think quite rationally and hopefully, you know, I think a certain way, but if more evidence come along, I'll I'll change the way I think and, and change the way I act, et cetera. But I guess like thinking sociologically, like that isn't necessarily the way most people operate. And I guess thinking about the way in which like most people eat animals because most people eat animals, right? Like I think yeah. Um, yeah. there's an Irish sociologist and, and animal advocate, Roger Yates, who said most people go with the flow. And I think that was a really sort of good sociological analysis. And so, yeah, I guess also thinking about like, just because I make a really good point about um, veganism, it doesn't automatically mean <laughs> someone is gonna change their ethics. And I think even from giving a lecture on animal issues, which the purpose wasn't to convince the students to go vegan as look like social deeper animals, but there was stuff about eggs and dairy in there, et cetera. And one of my students afterwards was like, Yeah, I'm I'm vegan now after the lecture. And then another student was like, I'll add like not being vegan to my long list of reasons why I'm a hypocrite. So that's the two different reactions. But the one who said, I'm vegan now was already a vegetarian. Uh, Both of her parents were animal advocates growing up and that kind of thing. So in terms of like her socialization, it wasn't much of a jump to do that. Uh, Whereas that same student who totally agreed philosophically was maybe their social circles were quite you know, yeah. opposed to or not connected to veganism or advocacy, So it'd be more sort of going against the flow for them. So, yeah, again, it, I think we, we think that it's just a matter of making the right
0: philosophical argument, but often it's got a lot more to do with people wanting to fit in with the society around them. Completely. And we've, we've already come on to quite naturally the final question in the conversation, which is how can we make the world a better place? And I think we are in this slightly strange situation where you and I both share a naturalistic way of thinking more or less, You know, we aspire to try and take a rational, honest understanding of the world or develop that. Um, We both share a roughly centiocentric worldview that we care about all suffering, and we might prioritize differently within that, but at least in concept, you know, that's how we think about moral consideration, compassion, and where it's warranted. And I think both you and I have high degrees of confidence in the solidity of those positions. They seem pretty strong, almost self-evident, but nearly everybody on the planet disagrees with this, and part of the reason I bang on about worldviews generally and sentientism specifically is because I do think that almost every human cause problem that we see around us does come back to either people believing things that are just wrong or poorly founded or it's a failure of compassion in some sense and so hence my motivation to try and get more people to commit to naturalism and more people to commit to sentiocentrism. I think you know, at a deep rooted way, that should have positive knock on effects with every decision we take. But it does feel like, as you've just said, the technical philosophical argument isn't necessarily what's going to win. It feels like in a sense, we've already won that argument theoretically substantially. Mm -hmm. I mean, there aren't many viable pushbacks. But the problem is one of social norms and social nature and psychology. And that's partly why you're you know, academic work is so fascinating because I do think that, you know, sociology and psychology is almost the dark heart of nearly all of these problems. And, of course, we need technical innovation. Yes, the philosophers can work on the trolley problems. You know, there's all sorts of other stuff we need to do right, as we face these problems. But it does seem like the weirdness of human psychology and sociology is is the biggest problem we're facing, whatever that problem is. So in that context, what where would you take the conversation next about, how, you know, is there a view, vision of a utopian future you think we can get to? And given that weirdness of human psychology and sociology, how can we most effectively drive change? It's an unfair question to ask, but
1: no, no, I, I've yeah, it's definitely something I've thought a lot about, and I think I've changed um, yeah quite quite a bit, even in my academic work, my focus of this. So my my research, my PhD thesis started out of questions I was asking as an a- activist. And basically in my early days as an activist, I just like, I went to the local center and kind of did whatever we were doing. It wasn't so much a thought of like, this is the most effective campaign or this feels the most right to me. It was like, that's what's happening. So I'll just get involved in that. Um, So the the very first campaign I was involved in was encouraging people to eat free range pigs. That was the the campaign um, at the time. Um, And then I started to, yeah, from listening to uh, Vegan Freak Radio, which is a really old reference. That was a podcast around tw- 2007, 2009 or something like that. Yeah, Gary Francione, Roger Yates, Paddy Mark, um, these different speakers all sort of questioning these sort of welfare approaches to animals of of free range, bigger cages, et cetera. Yeah. And I was like, this doesn't really sit right with me. Um, and yeah, even having those conversations like, I remember someone was saying like when I gave the flyer that I already eat free range and I was kind of like, okay, like I didn't feel right about that. And so I, I kind of switched from that more sort of welfare focused consumption advocacy to vegan advocacy of individual vegan outreach Um, and I definitely did feel a lot better about that because I felt like I was talking about what I genuinely I felt I was more effective because I was talking about genuinely what I believed rather than stuff that I didn't really believe in yeah while certain things could be better it's not an ideal state of affairs by any means if, if animals are still slaughtered but have a bit more space or or whatever else so I felt I was more effective and just felt better about that form of activism. So, that was the sort of key debate I, I was thinking about and led into my thesis. And so, that was sort of questions I was asking as an activist. And I still like individual veganism is really important to me. And I think individual vegan outreach definitely has a place within the animal movement. Um, but my thinking over the last couple of years has kind of shifted more from individual veganism towards a plant-based food system. Um, yeah. Animal Rebellion is a group over in the UK. Um, yeah, Harley mcdonald um is with me on Freedom of Species. She regularly contributes to the show um, with what they're up to. And I think they're a really inspiring group and have led me to kind of thinking more in that way. Um, and a a bunch of other things, but I think one of them is the the issue that, as I mentioned before, and as I, as I know you're aware of as well, like when people are confronted with new information, they don't necessarily change their behaviors. And I think that's something that we, yeah, sort of as rational people who try and be more rational again, I think that's our instinct just to convince people of rational argument. But if we're rational, we also have to be aware of the evidence, which says that doesn't necessarily work for most people. (laughs) Um, or yeah, like, like in your case doesn't necessarily work for a long time as well. Um, And, yeah, I was actually in a book chapter I've been working on recently. I was reading the paper, Meat-Related Cognitive Dissonance, The Social Psychology of Eating Animals. That's by uh, Roth Gerber and Rosenfield from 2021. Um, But, yeah, basically, they were saying exactly what I said, that basically when people are presented or when they feel uncomfortable about eating animals there's all these different strategies people have to kind of try and justify it, even though they feel bad about it. So if you kind of raise that dissonance or that hypocrisy, I guess, that that most people are pro animal views, but still eat animals, when they're confronted with that uncomfortableness, there's all these different strategies that people do rather than changing their behavior. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think like they're, the who goes through perhaps some ways or touches on some of the ways we could maybe work around. And I think that's generally our approach in the movement of, yeah, you know, how do we get around that and what's the best way to overcome that? But I think another way to look at it is go, well, maybe we could have a movement that includes people who eat animals, um, but can also advocate for animals at the same time, which is, it sounds wrong to me from someone who's generally, you know, been involved in vegan outreach, but if we think about other social movements, when we have people at environmental rallies, all of them are using fossil fuels, yeah. but yet they're still protesting against fossil fuels and talking about the need to move away from fossil fuels at the structural level, uh, criticizing companies, governments, etc. Um, couldn't we have the same thing for with animal advocates as well? Couldn't we have people who are consuming animals on the individual level but recognize the environmental animal rights reasons of shifting towards a plant-based food system and talking about that transition as well so i've kind of moved moved in that direction a little bit of again not to say this should be the only thing but maybe we should be looking more at that structural issue and i think the more that we change the food system to something that is more plant-based the more it'll be easier for individuals to make that choice because again it isn't necessarily a rational choice it's about what's easier what's uh what's going to be fitting in more so that idea of people could be advocating at the structural level more vegan options at schools more vegan options at restaurants um yeah government uh, ending subsidies for animal agriculture those kind of things um but yeah having said that as well sort of argued myself on this issue in australia for example we've got a a government that's very weak on climate action so i'm definitely yeah. not going to hold hold my breath for the government to switch to a plant-based food system for Australia. So I think it is absolutely worth doing those individual things because we can't necessarily wait for governments either the urgency is so um well it is so urgent both for the climate change but also for the individual animals um so it's definitely worth yeah becoming vegan and encouraging veganism just as it's worth trying to move away from car use and those kind of environmental steps but i, I guess what got me thinking about this issue is seeing a lot of right-wing critiques of climate marches i don't know if you've seen these photos around but They'll show that everyone has plastic water bottles or they'll show that people ate at McDonald's after the extinction rally or whatever, extinction rebellion rally or whatever it may be. And therefore, that sort of invalidates the the protest. And I'm like, well, it's not really about them. It's more about that structural shift away from fossil fuels, whether they have plastic bottles or not, whether they ate McDonald's after is really besides the point. Yeah. But a lot of our messaging within environmental movements is kind of this oppositional force of like, you say you care about all this stuff, but yet you're still eating animals and that has a big environmental impact. And I just think that that messaging isn't going to be particularly useful when it so closely resembles these right wing, uh, often climate denying critiques that is dismissing protests based on supposed hypocrisy from the, the environmental activists. So yeah.
0: And you're sort of making that you're playing into that making it easy for that criticism if you're pretending to be perfect it's very easy to get you know that that perfection undermined whereas if we can recognize that no one's perfect and we're you know captured within systems and we have limited influence we're trying to make change hmm. you, you know you're not a target to that very simplistic challenge
1: yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah and that's so i think definitely like on an individual level definitely the less animal Uh, products you consume for the environment is absolutely better and for individual animals even more important but yeah again I think most people know that environmentally like the less you drive the better for the environment but we can still kind of unite behind those that new like demands of no new fossil fuels for example and yeah could we do the same around animal agriculture people are eating animals to different degrees but recognize the environmental importance and rice importance and have that like those kind of structural campaigns of no new animal agriculture for example just yeah. as we have no new fossil fuels
0: yeah yeah and and i think one of the reasons people sometimes are hesitant about those styles of uh, activism and driving change and and even the humility we talked about earlier on is because they're worried that if we're if we're a bit too humble a bit too open-minded we're meeting people where they are we're recognizing that change happens over time is isn't something you could switch on we're recognizing that systems are complex and people are part of them that we end up softening to such a degree that we forget the moral imperative that was driving the whole exercise in the first place which is taking the perspective of the individual victims and i think and i think you can reconcile that by thinking through the effectiveness of the change we're driving which i I agree you know requires this realistic under appreciation of the you know social and systemic change but never still never forgetting the underlying philosophical moral stance that does identify with individual sentient victims and what's being done to them needlessly and and make, making sure that's still the lodestone that's that's where we're driving towards we don't end up in some sort of welfareist dead end where we've re-engineered you know pigs to emit slightly less methane and give them a bit more space and now everyone thinks it's fine Yeah. So I don't know if that's that's a sort of a resolution to where we can be effective in driving change without losing sight of, I guess, the philosophy and the ethics. Yeah,
1: I I think so. Yeah, and I I think like I'm definitely not advocating welfare reform. It's more about like. Talk, talking about moving towards veganism and like beyond the individual level. Yes. Um, and, and I guess also like while I definitely support like individual ethical choices and, and do my best to make them myself, I think also... Um, Sometimes that idea of philosophy and ethical decisions often is kind of spoken about as kind of we're all on the same level and all have the same opportunities to do that as well. It's kind of like what is the most ethical thing yeah. to do? Yeah. Um, and then like I, I realize the frustration that people kind of use these arguments, even though they're in a position where they could easily be vegan yeah. and kind of point to the extreme example and go, oh, that they can't do it, so therefore I can't. I don't think that's a good argument either. Um, but it kind of ignores the fact that we have different levels of opportunity to make. Ethical decisions, however we define ethical decisions, yeah, um, yeah, it's like philosophically that's right. But you know, I live in a rural area, and there's much less vegan options than myself, who lives like five minutes walk from a vegan supermarket. So yeah. it's um, yeah, thinking about like yeah, geographical location, class, um, all, all those kind of issues kind of shape. And I think sometimes yeah. if we view that those issues purely through individual ethics, um, we kind of gloss over some of those issues. Um, and and I think also. Like some of the, the studies I've recently found, like half of Americans uh, support banning slaughterhouses, for example, yeah. was a strange one to me. Um, and I think the, there was the, some what...
0: Sentience Institute research. Fascinating. Yeah, I that's think.
1: right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, the global uh, climate change, um, yeah, study, I can't remember who it was by, but about 30% of people support plant-based diets to address the environmental, the promotion of plant-based diets. So I feel like most people are on board philosophically which is different to when i started doing advocacy in the early 2000s or whatever it was was it early 2000s yeah probably no later 2000s or 2010s or whatever um but yeah it it, like most people are on board philosophically in terms of why people don't put that into practice like there is sometimes just like a lack of will or lack of um motivation but yeah for different people there there's some kind of a mix of like legitimate concerns and less legitimate concerns and yeah i think just that idea of sort of viewing things purely philosophically and individual ethics can kind of overlook some of those inequalities i
0: think yeah totally agree and i wouldn't want to some people drop into a somewhat patronizing tone where they're saying look the masses can't understand philosophy and i'm like that's bullshit right because i think everyone has the capability to understand the stuff we're talking about and yeah um and i think the the latent ethics that you talked about in those surveys indicate that many people are sort of there already, but at the same yeah. time, you know, most people don't have the luxury to spend an hour and a half, you know, talking these things through on a podcast. People live in different mm-hmm. social contexts. They have different environments around. They've got different pressures on their lives. And those are also, you know, reasons why you can't just expect, you know, a philosophical argument to be the most relevant thing or the thing that will drive change in, in some way you've got to help make it, Easy and straightforward and socially acceptable for people to do you know take better ethical decisions.
1: yeah that's and that, I guess that's why I'm kind of thinking again, in my more recent research, thinking about that structural shift and and yeah, the more that we do make it easier, the more that we make it uh, more socially acceptable, the way I guess like the general approach, the animal activist movement has gone. We've got an animal based system and a system where governments give subsidies to animal agriculture, much more than plant based agriculture and kind of accept all these things and say, as an individual, you should choose plant based within this system, which favors animal consumption. And it's like if we can change the system, obviously working towards a totally plant based system, but even just in that direction of of more supporting or incentivizing the consumption of animal of plant based products, then yeah, I think that that would really help sort of, yeah, in addressing that lag um, between like the ethics where a lot of people
0: are there, but not necessarily the the consumption matching that. Makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Mm. And I think one of the other things that frustrates me is where people take the systemic argument too far that they end up using that as another excuse. So some people Mm -hmm. seem to think that these systems are like, they're like magic that operate independently of consumers and governments, you know, they would Yeah. The animal product industry would continue even if no one bought from it. It's like, well, where do you think the money comes from? So there is this sense of, oh, it's the system, therefore I don't need to change. And I think it's good to, you know, be realistic about our ability individually to change those systems. It's pretty small, right? But in the same way, as you wouldn't use that as a justification for not bothering voting, right? We still have to recognize that those systems are driven, yes, partly by subsidies, but largely by many trillions of individual consumer decisions that put money into those systems for them to continue. So um, again, I think there are, you know, there are, there are traps there and excuses there, but I think a a well-rounded appreciation of the reality of systemic change and the fact that each of us as individuals aren't just consumers, right? We can also be leaders and managers and voters and letter writers and campaigners and, you know, those systems comprise individuals too. Um, So individual change isn't just about, you know, what we do in the supermarket um yeah yeah and i I think
1: i I would also say sort of almost on the contrary i think a lot of the animal movement goes too far in that direction and argues it is just sort of individuals creating demand for these products uh, and we could just as easily switch these other things and yeah i guess i would also point to the way in which um companies create the demand not necessarily individuals through advertising through availability that kind of thing so yeah, definitely not rejecting individual change, but I guess like as a sociologist, looking at that structure and agency, and the fact that we have agency as individuals, but again, to different degrees depending on our circumstances. And there's these structures, but the structures change over time, and they're not totally separate to these individual decisions and actions and that kind of thing. So seeing that sort of give and take rather than one or the other, and and yeah, I definitely support individual change and structural change. Um, I, I guess I just see a lack of that stru- that structural focus in the animal movement, which is why kind of my thinking has gone in that direction.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. Now I'm aware of taking a massive chunk of your time already, so I'm going to give you a choice. Um, yeah. We can either wrap up there because I think that's you know it's a, it's a nice way to finish with that balance, um, or if you wanted to, I was interested to go back to the fact you talked about anarchism earlier on because most of this conversation has been you know, in a way, sort of assuming current systems and ways of working and what can we do within that? So uh, it it might be interesting if you're up for it to just sort of lay out how that sort of anarchist thread of thinking might play in in terms of, again, a sort of utopian end state or how Mm. theories of change or how does that relate to the issues we're talking about? But if you want to wrap up now, then...
1: No, Happy no, I, I'm, I'm good to talk about that. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, and I guess I guess that, that humility of, like, I think even within anarchism, there's anarcho-syndicalists, there's green anarchists, there's, you know, um, anarcho-communists, there's all these kind of different threads. So I think we can often, like, divide ourselves and go... You know, not not only I'm only going to listen to anarchists, but I'm going to listen to this particular strain of yeah. anarchists. So, yeah, I definitely am humble about that, that I don't have all the answers and I, I learn a lot from people of other political ideologies as well. Um, but, yeah, I have always connected with that the most, I guess, again, perhaps coming out of punk rock definitely helped with that, but... Um, Yeah, I guess thinking about other political systems that I connect with in some ways, like Marxism, for example, I definitely see a lot of valid critiques of work under capitalism and and exploitation of workers and workers feeling alienated, not having connection to their work. Um, And so the critiques of capitalism, I think, are all totally valid. But I guess where anarchists and myself maybe differ is like the ideal solution. Like, where do we go from there? Um, And I haven't, and obviously, again, Marxism isn't a monolith and Marxists have different ideas about this. But overall, it's often more about this group, this group of people, uh, the bourgeoisie, the business owners are running things, and we need the proletariat to kind of lead things or a certain group of the proletariat. And so it's kind of sort of the ideology is that like the wrong people are running things basically on some level. Um, Whereas anarchism is more about like, how can we all sort of make decisions collectively rather than having this leadership class? So I guess that's why uh, I connect with anarchism. Um, Yeah. Having said that, we don't live in in an anarchist world. So I certainly, you know, do, do support things like, you know, governments stopping subsidizing uh, animal agriculture and moving that towards incentivizing plant-based agriculture so I'm definitely not you know not a purist in that sense but um, I guess where my anarchism maybe does intersect with veganism and I have spoke about anarchism and and links between veganism and anarchism et cetera, in terms of challenging hierarchies for example um, but also I guess that sort of uh, individual change which again I am sort of critical, yeah. critical of as well but but that idea of like um, a lot of the advocacy I was doing, people would say like, what petition do I sign? Like who can ask? I'd say, no, like you can do it yourself. You could like not needing to go through through leaders. And, and, and I still see individual vegan as really important, but I guess I've moved away from that supply and demand kind of analysis of veganism um because as you touched on it does have some merit but it sort of ignores the way that companies also and governments also play a role in creating demand as well Um, but more about like living living the world that you want to create i think that is a really common theme within anarchism of of like not waiting like after the revolution we'll do this or after like trying to live live the world you want to see right now um and yeah i have written a paper along those lines of how um vegan veganism fits with like an imagining a, a utopia. So I guess that is more where I see the see the the benefits or the 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 power of veganism of more like imagining this world where animal products don't exist and putting that into practice now um, as as well. So I guess that, that's one connection I see there. But um yeah and, definitely and, and yeah. again I'm
0: a, I'm I'm an amateur in this space, but my understanding is some of the themes of Marxist thought. Actually, have anarchism in a sense as a sort of end state. So that once you've gone through this Absolutely. restructuring, yeah. you know, then then you can free everybody to, you know, operate without hierarchy. And and I guess you're, yeah. what you're suggesting now is, you know, we don't need to go through that revolutionary process where we give a bunch of other people loads of arbitrary authority. <laughs> we yeah. can yeah. almost live an individual sort of utopian vision and as an example, as a as a model, as a instantiation of that, you know, right now and drive that instead.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, a lot of, I definitely have read a lot of Marxists too, but a lot of what I've heard about this is from anarchist theorists. I'll give that disclaimer. But um, David Graeber, who is an anarchist who I've learned a lot from, um, an anthropologist, but he was talking about the way in which like communism is basically anarchism, as you mentioned. So that is sort of the end goal where there's no authority. We have a, a withering away of the socialist state and we basically are left with communism, which is basically anarchism of no state. Uh, workers control everything directly and it's sort of this utopia which anarchists are going through too. Yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm anarchists... sure that's what
0: I'm sure that's what she is working towards in China, no doubt.
1: Well, <laughs> I guess that that is where the critique comes in yeah, in yeah. terms of like the that's not necessarily how power works. Once people have power, yeah. I think they're unlikely to give it up. So I think even though um yeah, some socialist governments have done some good things in terms of redistributing wealth and more equality, et cetera. I don't see any of them moving towards that communism. I don't see any of them giving up state, even if it's for somewhat valid reasons of I don't want this right wing government to come in and, and have like the poor being more oppressed yeah, than than, than they, they are now, that kind of thing. But I don't see, yeah, again, I don't think that there's a lot of sociology and organizations, that kind of thing, but I don't think that's the way organizations work of giving up power. So yeah, that is sort of where the anarchists uh anarchist versus Marxist critique comes in sort of the solutions, even though we both don't like capitalism.
0: Yeah. Like it. Thank mm-hmm. you. And I love that idea of sort of trying to live the utopia self now, not, you know, not waiting despite the challenges that may throw up. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's been yeah. an absolutely fascinating, uh, broad ranging conversation. I think we've, we've answered what's real, what matters and how to fix all the world's problems in mm-hmm. an hour and a half. So yeah, it's been an inspiration to talk to you. What's the best way of people following you, learning more about your work, subscribing yeah. to Freedom of Species and your other show?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um I guess I'll start with academically if, if anything I've said um takes your interest. All of my publications are available on the website theconversation.com So if you search my name, Nick Pendergrass, all my publications there, nearly all of them are, are open access um to view. I'm also on Twitter. Um my academic Twitter is at Nick Pendy, uh P-N-D-E. Um and yeah, I, I mentioned I also do media work. So um freedom of species is a show i do or not just me but i'm I'm part of the team of freedom of species and animal advocacy radio show um which jamie will be on or or has been on i'm not sure how quickly you <laughs> release these things but either way uh, keep your eye out for jamie uh, on that show um but yeah that is if you just search freedom of species on your favorite podcast app we're on most of them um and me and my partner katie also do a podcast called progressive podcast australia which uh we're both vegan and it definitely does cover some animal issues, but it, it's much broader than that. We cover ev- everything from politics to, to pop culture, to gender, anti-racism, environment, just, yeah, it's just very broad, uh, whatever we feel like talking about really, but sort of a social justice kind of a podcast, I guess, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Well, I'll include links in the show notes so people can click through and follow your work, yeah. Great. Thanks for doing that. Well, thank you again. Apologize to Katie for um, the disturbance later to the evening, but it's been great to talk to you next Stay in touch.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thanks for that. And yeah, I really enjoyed the chat and I really enjoy the show. Um, Shout out actually to Mike Kaplan, who's been on the show before for setting this up as well. uh,
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Mike.
1: Yeah. Enjoyed being on the show and also enjoyed listening to the other episodes as well and uh, introducing me to this podcast. So thanks, Jamie. And thanks to Mike.
0: Brilliant. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?